everyone. Welcome to The Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey here with co-host Peter Bale. Peter, great to see you in person. Bernard, it's always so good to come to your um, broadcasting studio in the in the depths of Freeman's Bay. Uh, yes, broadcasting house in Hoon Bay, mm. as we call it. Hoon well, I, Bay. well, I think we'll call where I live Hoon Bay. I think we call where you live Freeman's Bay. <laughs> That's right. Actually, actually. No, this is the yeah. poor man's Hoon Bay. Yes, um, lovely to see you. It's been another uh, week of uh, big news, um, fallout, uh, drama in the climate, in politics, in uh, all, all around the world, and plenty to come. Because as we speak to you from here in Auckland, we're bracing for what what some describe as the biggest storm we've ever faced uh we'll see it's yeah we have to be we have to be careful not to end up like you know those kind of florida weathercasters who stand actually maybe we should do a hoon on monday from you know the end of west haven or somewhere <laughs> you know in our in our waterproof studio in our waterproof stu- no no but just you know standing holding holding on to something relatively fr- fragile and being blown into the Harbour. I think it's an extremely good idea. Yeah, yeah. No, this is live on air. Um, we're gonna we're gonna take over the global media with with Zoom. I think um, waterproof Zoom. Uh, it's a great uh, week. We've got uh, a few guests on this week, and it, we, there may even be more if if we if we get a confirmation partway through the um, the event. But uh, this week we're going to talk about more fallout from the storms. What's happening with Auckland's development with intensification, with the NIMBYs versus the YIMBYs. We'll talk to Josephine Bartley, who is a councillor for Mangakiki Tamaki on the Auckland City Council. And we've got Robert Patman joining us um, shortly to talk about what's happening in the rest of the world. And we have the fabulous Gavin at yes. half past to talk to Gavin Ellis um, to talk about uh, the, the failed or the non-existent now merger between TV and RNZ. And I'm TVNZ and RNZ, and I'm very keen to talk to them about what, what the alternative is because I'm, I'm not absolutely certain that they can go on quite the way they are, even though that merger was badly sold. But that's a little preview of our conversation at probably half past the hour. So we'll be talking the rest of the world from 5.10 to 5.20 or so, possibly talking about climate change politics from 5.20, 5.30. We talk RNZ, TVNZ merger, and then Josephine Bart- Bartley, potentially on quarter to six to talk about um, NIMBYs versus YIMBYs intensification and uh, floodplains. Because, <laughs> you know, hey, that's that's fun times. On the, well, It also uh, allows us to bring back housing. Absolutely. As I yeah. say many times and often, uh, there is only one thing that really matters in the political economy. And what is that, Bernard? Housing, housing, housing. Yeah. I was, I, funnily enough, I had a meeting with a financial advisor today who's, who's trying to prize some dollars out of my, um, my get out of, you know, if he can get there before the moths get there. Um, and I mentioned that I mentioned you, and I said that you know, we have an we have a housing market with an economy attached. Yes, and he said, "Yes, I know." Bernard goes on about that. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know we saw it again uh, this week with um, the government making all sorts of decisions, uh, in part I think to try to get inflation and interest rates under control. This is the year when about half. Well, of- I don't think I don't know whether. The TVNZ or RNZ merger contributed to inflation other than the consultant payments. But oh, $23 million. Well, yeah, I mean, as a, as a consultant myself, I totally advocate the use of consultants, particularly me. <laughs> at, yeah. at thousands of dollars per yep, hour. absolutely. Yeah. But, Bernard, you know, that, we, we talked a little bit about this, and if we can, can do some New Zealand stuff before. I mm. mean, it seems to me, exactly as we discussed some weeks ago, in a sense, when this was coming up, that they are suffering from the problem of all progressive governments, which is that they try to do too much. They don't have the execu- execution capacity. So, in a sense, good on Chris Hipkins for saying, 
we're going to have to pause this now if we're going to have any chance of being being re-elected. And we'll come back to these things later. I mean, it's just, of course, Three Waters is not really included in that um, because it, it is you know, a long way through the legislative process already. Yeah, you can look at that in two ways. You can say either, yes, they tried to do too much too soon and it's a good idea to clear the decks and make sure that you're, as they say in the corporate world, uh, not uh, stressing your bandwidth. Uh, but also it says they couldn't execute on their plans. And uh, in my view, looking at it long term and strategically, they went into the election in 2017 with some big promises and big ideas. Yep but also limited themselves in how they could use the yes, tax system absolutely. and the balance sheet and then realised once they were in power that actually they were uh, they were hamstrung, they were tied down on what they could and couldn't do, so they couldn't But this is pro- the dilemma that all Labour governments face, whether it's here or in the UK. And, of course, they did put themselves, into, a, yeah. they put themselves into, a, into an even deeper uh, or tighter straitjacket you know, by the Jacinda comments about not my political lifetime. But... It, I mean, her political lifetime is now over for the time being. So all of these things are going to come back onto them. But I just, I think there is a, there is a sort of fairness aspect here that progressive governments try to be progressive and they believe in change. This particular government also has a bit of a problem, I would say, with centralisation. Yep, that's the um, modus operandi. To be fair, um, there'd be a few people in national who'd love to centralise things like uh, local government mm. and uh, particularly health. in Auckland. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. mean they just move the parliament to Auckland? Yeah, yeah. Be, yeah, and and the Auckland City Council, which was essentially the centralisation of our largest city, mm. that is all about um, centralising power, having closer, more direct connections between central government and local government. And the Auckland Super City was a you know a National Party special, two thousand and eight, nine, ten, with. Uh, the likes of, or 2019, with the likes of Rodney um, Hyde uh, doing his thing. And uh, so, uh, in in my view, Chris Hipkins is effectively declaring um, or uh, putting up the white flag on uh, the big ideas that weren't funded and that weren't yeah, backed but that's, by but the But isn't that reasonable? You know, if, if, if we think he's got nine months to turn it around... The problem for him, I'm though, trying to be fair to him. Really. Yeah, the problem Very for him fair, is that actually. they've never actually fessed up and said, "You know what? We promised transformation, but we didn't understand uh, how our other promises about limiting size of government and size of debt would hold us down." And uh, we're sorry can you about imagine, that. Can you imagine what Thomas Cochran and others would do? You know, if if they actually came out and said that that honestly, I, th- I think you're exactly right that it is the way they should do it. Is just because actually Hipkins does have that kind of. Um, you know, cheeky boy just from his hairdresser's son, you know, coming down with his big flappy ears. And, you know, he, he looks like, a, you know, he's a nice boy. And the and that's true. But the problem is he was right there mm. at the top table throughout. Um, he was one of the big five, so to speak, in the kitchen cabinet, mm-hmm. along with Grant Robertson, Jacinda Ardern, um, and uh, Carmel Cipollone. And so, you know. But he's his only man, he's his own man now. But he's also a, pr- a pretty much a centrist third way politician. Mm. So you had Tony Blair, Bill Clinton through the um, the 1990s, who essentially said, "We've got to get back into power. We've got to take over from those, you know, Republicans and Tories in Reagan and Thatcher. We need to get back into power by convincing people that we can do the economy just as well as the Tories." Yeah, but they weren't in New Zealand. Uh, well, you know? interestingly, if you look at um, uh, the likes of Helen Clark and also um, uh, uh, Jacinda Ardern, they very much were in that third-way mould, mm. which is 
we have to be fiscally conservative Absolutely. and socially liberal. The problem is when you try to be transformational, you realise the fiscally conservative thing doesn't work. And uh, well, Except that they have actually been. Well, you mean they have actually been ra- remarkably fiscally conservative. Uh, absolutely. But that also With means the that possible they- exception of, of certain... Uh, unintended profligacy during during COVID. Yeah, but they also didn't achieve Kiwi Build. They didn't achieve no. the train from the CBD to the airport. Of, which, also, of which city? Of uh, Auckland. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. No, that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was supposed to have happened <laughs> before yeah. the last election didn't. And um, we shall see whether or not um, we get any action before that. One thing, so we obviously had uh, Chris Hipkins say this week that uh, TVNZ RNZ merger is off. Uh, we've got uh, no biofuels mandate. Uh, we've also decided to get rid of social insurance, so clearing the decks. But we are, are to- we getting rid of social insurance or just not imposing it now? Uh, well, that's going to be an interesting question for the election campaign. Is it going to be in the manifesto? It's not this term, and I'd have to say it's unlikely in the next term. It's going to be too distracting, I think, mm-hmm. for the um, the government to really uh, uh, do this before the election. I think they go in with an incredibly low target strategy yep. and hope that uh, Christopher Luxon um, puts his head up too often and they can shoot it off from a distance. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's it's interesting because because it's it, the trouble is with that worker um, compensation idea, which is what Spain pretty much has, and it works extremely well and softens these downturns when you do need to conceivably shed jobs. Although I think shedding jobs in New Zealand is really difficult, as we can see, because there's just tight, tight, mm. such a tight labour market. But um, yeah, I mean, it sort of plays into that whole big government thing, and the trouble is that's what they're fighting against. But here we have Robert. Yes, Robert. Are you wonderful. having a? Are you? Has your secretary brought you a gin and tonic yet? Your cheers. Cheers, Robert. <laughs> I'm waiting. Oh yeah, mm. we've really got to solve this. We have good to solve. Yeah, I actually, I suppose in Dunedin, it's probably whiskey or Forty Five South. Do they Whis- still make Forty Five South? No, I haven't come across it. But yeah, no, it's not whiskey. What so, are you used to anyway? Whiskey. So th- I think whiskey in the middle of winter with Robert. I think that's the yeah, way to go. Yeah. G- gin and tonic <laughs> in the summer. At yeah. least. All right. Well, we're going to have what? to get. You know, somebody said, "Are we?" And I suspect this is still the bloody swan dry gin from last week. And yeah. I nearly brought a lemon and some uh, and some um, sage down t- and some various herbs things to rub, to rub in the glass. But I'd need to do that next time. I'm, uh, I'm trying oh, to right. raise Bernard's standards of gin, gin and tonics. Yes, the gin we have. Well, I tell you what, the weather was so warm in Dunedin last week, um, thirty degrees in about three days. Bloody running, hell! You could have had legitimately having a gin and tonic. Excellent. Oh, good. Excellent. So now, Robert, looks to me as though we've got the beginnings of a Russian offensive, right? Or at least that's what the people in Luhansk are saying. Oh, yeah. that I mean, do you, uh, what's the weather yeah. there? Is it, is, it, is it actually warmer than normal? And so the... It's milder than expected. Mm. Um, but it seems Ukrainian intelligence is, and American intelligence is strongly of the view that uh, there's going to be a major offensive, probably to coincide with the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of yeah. Ukraine. Um, it's going to involve somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 newly mobilized troops. But please keep in mind that this the Russian army has been plagued by a number of problems, and these are not going to go away. Mm. What are they? Uh, communications problems. The, the Ukrainians constantly intercept Russian military into communications, which, of course, is disastrous in battlefield terms. Um, secondly, morale. Uh, a lot of these new, newly mobilised troops are poorly trained mm. and not highly motivated. They'll be facing battle-hardened Ukrainian troops. 
thirdly, Russia does not have control of the sky, skies, nor does Ukraine, mm. for that matter. Uh, one of the surprising outcomes. So, yes, it will be an infantry-led offensive, uh, not least because Russia has lost a lot of armour. Not They've lost more than 3,000 tanks and more than 3,500 APCs. But um, they've got some real structural problems in their military setup, which are not likely to go away, mm. even with many more troops thrown into the battle. Did you see the other day, Robert, that... Um uh, and I don't think I would have seen this had Elon Musk not retweeted it, which was pretty stupid. Um, I was about to say the F word there of fabulously stupid. Uh, from a bogus made-up Turkish newspaper suggesting that 1,500, I think it was, NATO troops had already died in um, in Ukraine. NATO advisors had, died, you know, it had an extraordinary list of foreigners who had already been killed there. And the idea mm. that you could hide 1,500 NATO troops having been killed in um, Ukraine is just completely ridiculous to me. Mm. So, I mean, I think we're going to get a. I, I'm, I'm worried a little bit that that this this prep about aeroplanes and tanks and so on is actually because people know that the Ukrainians may not have enough to deal with that onslaught. I think they'll probably be in the defensive initially, but remember they've got a huge 2.5 mm. billion package which is being rapidly delivered. In fact, uh, the British, amongst those who pledge tanks and their Challenger tanks arriving ahead of schedule mm. next month in mm. March. Uh, Leopard 1s as well as Leopard 2s are on their way. They're, going to re- they're obviously going to have involve some training, and you're right, there will be a lag between all these pledges of heavy weaponry and Ukraine mm. uh, being able to deploy and use them well. But they have demonstrated that they can use sophisticated weaponry well, and... Um, I think that this offensive by the Russians may, in the short term, put the Ukrainians on the defensive, but I think it's going to be very costly in the loss of life for Russians. So, Robert, I was curious, this week uh, we saw Zelensky go to the British Parliament with his green shirt on and um, be very Churchillian uh, in Parliament, and the British Prime Minister said, yep, you can come and train your pilots here on NATO standard jets, and we're thinking about whether or not we should send our fighter jets to you. How, how do you see this, you know, edging closer and closer to more and more tightly coordinated training, equipment sharing stuff between NATO and Ukraine and how the Russians might react? Well, I think it's edging in that direction. In many respects, the, 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 if you like, the chatter about pilot training and possibly fighter jets for Ukraine parallels the discussion we saw last November about possible yes. tanks. Yeah, which was denied uh, initially. So and then... I think we all go. I think the Ukrainians are going to get fighter jets. Uh, the question is of when. And I think at the moment, uh, NATO and America. America's part of NATO, obviously, they are focusing on making sure they can deliver the package they've already pledged. Mm. In other words, they see Ukraine's immediate uh, priority, given that Russia doesn't control the skies, they see uh, getting these heavy weaponry into place with Mm. the Ukrainians being able to use it to blunt this looming offensive that's coming. I wonder, um, just moving on to the, the other side of the world, uh, Robert, with the news in the last couple of weeks of the shooting down of China's 
supposed weather balloon, but it's clear now from um, having got the bits and pieces from the bottom of the ocean that there was some some fairly serious surveillance stuff going on. The, uh, the Americans waited until it was offshore and then shot it down. For spectacular pictures and. Um, and the Chinese were not not happy at all. What, what do you think this exercise tells us about relations between China and the United States? And uh, who comes out of this looking good slash bad? Well, clearly the relationship is fragile. There was a slight upturn when Joe Biden and Xi Jinping had a three-hour meeting on the sidelines of an international meeting or gathering. Um, and this, we know that Anthony Blinken has cancelled his mm. visit to Beijing. I, I'm not sure he should have done, but no. that's, that's another debate in itself. But uh, he certainly did. He cited <clears throat> this Chinese spy balloon program, as he called it. And um, what, what I what I think is interesting is that the spy balloon program actually has probably been going on a lot longer than we realise, mm. and it probably we the information we're getting out from the United States in the last 24 hours suggests that as many as 40 countries may have had visits from Chinese yep. balloons in the last two or three years. And um, in the last year alone, uh, sorry, not the last year, but the last year of the Trump administration, the first year of the Biden administration, apparently there was another four incursions, but they were not spotted in real time. Indeed, no. what was very interesting is that one of the reasons the Chinese may be using these balloons, which seem sort of incongruous in many respects, given that they've got this sophisticated satellite spy network. Um, one of the reasons they may use it is because they evade radar. In fact, yeah. the balloon that was shot down was actually visually sighted. Yeah, but you could, see it, you could see it through the naked eye and certainly with binoculars. Yeah. yeah, but they have retrospectively using <clears throat> um, various means, they have actually begun to unravel the sheer scale of what the Chinese have been doing. Mm. Um, the Chinese, are, of course, maintaining their innocence and saying that this is all being trumped up and blown up and um, the Americans are trying to recreate the Cold War narrative and they've just had a whole succession of balloons that have gone astray, violent winds at 60,000 feet, which don't not really sound very mm. plausible because apparently the wind currents at 60,000 feet are not that... After all, many countries have weather balloons, but they don't seem to have the problems the Chinese have of keeping their weather balloons under control. So it's increasingly looking like it was a carefully uh, coordinated and calibrated um, spy program. Yeah, I thought there were two interesting, as two, two amusing aspects of it for those of us who are sort of tankies or, in, in your case, swivel swivel chair military analysts. Now we've um, all got swivel chairs. It's yeah, very uh, good. Is um, <laughs> They sent a U two aircraft up because of course you know, which is the one that Gary Powers was shot down on in the yes. United States in the nineteen sixties, causing a you know, major global global incident. They sent a U two up to um check out what was you know, what the what the uh, Chinese balloon was doing. But it's you know the an actual U two? An actual U two, yeah. Not, oh my my yeah, goodness, it's not still named, got them? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, watching watching the video of them landing is kind of hilarious because they don't have um we the wings are so large they need humans to to um put a little wheel onto them as they land. Anyway. Just um, imagine if we all drove around in nineteen fifties cars, because that's essentially what do, that technology is. Yeah, I do, but yeah, yeah, and it's and I'm very proud of it. But well nineteen well actually yeah, nineteen sixties. Um but uh 
uh, I digress slightly, which is not a, not at all my style. But apparently, um, Robert, the thing they have with the balloons is persistence. You know that they can stay yeah. uh, relatively long over a particular site, and presumably all of that data from the balloon has already been shipped back to China weeks ago, days ago. Yeah, I mean we we've learned from the American intelligence network that apparently the Chinese balloon that was visually sighted hovered over the yeah. Montana missile site. So there must be some sort of control exercise. It has, it has, it has propellers, yeah, apparently. Um, so that's very interesting that it's got the capability to drift along or fly along and then stop. Mm. And then apparently it stops and ho- and where it hovered, we're always close to very sensitive military installations. I keep thinking of a book that you might have grown up. You might be old enough to remember this, Robert, although you're, I know you're a young, strapping fellow, but the, the, the wonderful French book, The Red Balloon, the Ballon Rouge, and the, where the little boy gets carried off by the balloons over Paris at the end. This is just up. Yeah, or up, up. or up yeah, for yeah. the modern for the modern audience. Yeah, and and also you know around the world in ninety days is one of the great um, you know oh, yeah. great. Actually, this is stories. that's almost exactly what it's done around the world yeah. in about thirty five days. days. Yeah. yeah, but with a with a bit of spying going mm. on. Yeah. Uh, Robert, yes. I'm I'm curious. Um, you know, at the same Sorry. time as all this is happening, for the first time in two years, um, Australia sent a shipment of coal to China. And there is, you know, a warming of relations going on between Australia and China. So it's not all bad in that, uh, you know, the the US Secretary of State was about to go and have a chat with China. And when you look at the trade stats, there's still enormous trade going on between China and the United States. You know, is this just like normal friction and noise and just in relations between superpowers and we should I not be too... I think it's irritation between them. I don't think it's... A game-changing development. Uh, the Chinese are vociferously denying any spying, but um, they would say that, wouldn't they? Authoritarian regimes very rarely admit uh, any wrongdoing, or when they get it wrong. When do we see Mr. Putin go onto Russian TV and say, "I'm sorry, guys, the Russian economy is being run appallingly, and I'm absolutely responsible"? And I seem to have stolen a trillion dollars. Would you like it back? Ping. That's right. So, um, but I, I agree, Bernard. I don't think it, it, it it's going to, you know, the Chinese are facing a challenge now. This has turned out to be a bit of a public relations disaster for that. And it doesn't just affect the United States. Mm. They've been apparently targeting India and um, Canada, sensitive South, sites yeah. there. So they've got about 40 countries they've got to account to now. So they're going to have, it's going to be very interesting to see how they respond because, the Chinese know better than anyone that if they're going to be the second superpower and retain that position, they do need at least some friends. And uh, you, you actually, it, it's not just down to raw power, and it, it, you do actually need people to have a reasonable view of you. And um, this is going to be very a big challenge for the Chinese well, leadership. The other thing that's I, I was rather taken with. Um, Professor Emery Brady's interpretation of what happened, which I thought was very shrewd, and she was asked in an interview. Um, Emery was asked why why the Chinese would do something like this, which is clunky and always possible to backfire for them. And she felt it was actually uh, not just informational reasons why they were engaging in this behaviour, but also because uh, she believed they were testing America's ability to respond to incursions around sensitive sites. In other words, they were checking out 
how alert and how on the ball the Americans were. This is a bit and, like this is a bit like the the dragon poking the the eagle. Yeah, you know? and given the fact that the Chinese does do ten, I mean, it's very difficult to generalise, of course. But I think I think many of us would agree that Chinese decision makers tend to think in longer term time frames. Mm. Than Western decision makers were often concerned up the it's, next election. It's interesting that we um, learned that um, Trump had actually, you know, known about two or three of these flights during his time, and he did nothing. Whereas, ah, uh, I'm not sure that's fair to Donald Trump, though, because apparently we've learned now. In that, that was the version I heard as well, Bernard. But we've learned in the last 24 hours, the Pentagon have said they didn't actually know. Uh, that is, they hadn't actually registered, they hadn't seen um, evidence of these incursions at the time, in real time, and uh-huh. so the president was not informed. So mm. when Trump Yikes. said he didn't know anything about this, he was actually being truthful. And <laughs> Shock horror. <laughs> the, the, the Pentagon um, have, you know, said that the, they've only retrospectively identified these incursions. So um, they've obviously done some data searches and you know, obviously crossed all the T's and, and the I's, et cetera, and dotted the I's, and, and they've worked out this actually happened. So, I yeah, I mean, it, it is an interesting situation, and uh, it does so that, show that China has considerable global ambitions, I think. What did you make of um, Chris Hipkins flying across the Tasman for a lunch with uh, the Australian Prime Minister? And um, it was all very good um, uh, political economy diplomatic theatre uh, but what, what what did you think it said about our relations and and how Chris Hipkins has started I, I think it was a um, a clear very clear statement that Australia is our key partner our, the closest mm. country to us and um, they seem to have hit it off reasonably well um, and um, it, obviously the relationship will take a while to build between Anthony Albanese and Chris Hipkins, but all the signs are that they're likely to get on quite well. And uh, I think Chris Hipkins was probably pleased by the fact that the Australians have at least tweaked their rules around 501s, uh, although they haven't removed the legislation. So that was a bit of a bonus. My um, my view on this is... I, I, I do think it... Sorry, please. My my view on this is that um, this is actually a really important event in our political economy, the relationship between Australia mm. and New Zealand mm. around citizenship's rights for New Zealanders in Australia. There's about 600,000 mm-hmm. there at the moment. And uh, Anthony Albanese, in his yeah. first meeting with Jacinda Ardern, said, yep, we love New Zealanders, we want you to be raw Australians, uh, full 100%, you know, you pay your taxes, you get the lot. And uh, we want you to stay. The background here, of course, is that one of the first things Albanese did as Prime Minister was do a job summit where he um, listened to people in business who said, please bring in as many people as you possibly can to help us with our labour shortages. And the New Zealanders are best. So Albanese increased his uh, uh, quota for migrants to 300,000 and went straight on to the business of, hey, let's reassure New Zealanders when they come here that they can be raw Mm. Australians just like us and get all of the medical and educational benefits. 
I actually think this is a bigger deal than many people understand in that... In terms of the New Zealand labour market. Yes, in terms of uh, young New Zealanders who can now see that they can get themselves a two-bedroom department Mm -hmm. in central Melbourne or Sydney for four or five hundred bucks, which is... A shed load cheaper than the um, so like the Swedes going to Norway to be the waiters. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, a shed load cheaper than than a a a five hundred dollar a week mouldy, shitty apartment in Wellington, and and you get thirty percent more pay. And um, now Jesus, you actually why couldn't you go? Can we do the, Can we do this from there? We could actually. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, I go to the Gold Coast, except my IQ would shrink even further um, but yeah. yeah no this is a good Muldoon joke um so um i actually think this is one of the moments and we'll get more detail on april the 24th anzac day when the officials are supposed to come back and say yep it's all go because um this is the escape valve for new zealanders the pressure that's on our political economy in the form of higher rents higher house prices relatively mm. low wages relative uh, and low disposable incomes a lot of young people going, you know what, I can I can have a great party with my mm. mates already there. I can sleep on their couch for the first few weeks. I can get myself an apartment in, where it's all happening. I can get a 30 to 40% pay increase. And look, my prime minister wants me to live in Australia permanently. It's fantastic. So um, I, think, I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the next few months. And in part, it will mm. depend on how much pressure there is in the Australian labour market, which from the latest um, empl- employment and economic stats we've seen from Australia, there's plenty of plenty of pressure. Uh, for example, China, of course, is uh, not only buying Australian coal again, but it is buying its iron ore hand over fist. And uh, we've certainly seen Australia becoming the second biggest producer of the uh, rare metals needed mm, for batteries yep. and uh, electrics and... Um, Australia's economy, despite rising interest rates and their house prices falling too, is in pretty good shape. So I, I actually mm. think this might be one of these factors in the election campaign as national, and it's quite an attractive thing for national to say. John Key did it. Remember that moment when John Key went into the um, the Wellington Stadium, what used to be called the Westpac Stadium, it's now the Sky Stadium, mm. and, he, and, he, and he looked around and he pointed all the cameras at the 30,000 seats and said, this is how many New Zealanders are going to Australia each year because they've given up. Well, that that um, drive is on again, and we'll we'll see. Uh, Robert, thank I, you so having, much, having, Robert, for the for having the, rented yeah. at you for the yeah. last two or three minutes. Yeah. How are your twenty six houses down in um, Dunedin? I'm sure they're doing brilliantly. <laughs> well, this is my humble abode. Yeah. It's, it's fine, thank you. And please, twenty six or or sixty seven, as Peter fittingly uh, <laughs> remarked some time ago. By the way, Peter, you'll be pleased to know several people picked you up on that comment. Uh, I was walking down Dunedin High Street and. A student came up to me and said, is it true that you really... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. First for disinformation. I said Peter had a a lively sense of (laughs) humour. This this happens to me actually all the time. I walk around and people go, I heard you on the hoon saying this. Really? Are you sure? (laughs) And I'm saying, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah, it might have been Peter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, no, this is because we are remarkably successful and, uh, and because of you, we have we're remarkably successful because we have you exactly, thank and you. and because oh, um, Shortland Street's got nothing on us. I yeah, can, exactly. Uh, Robert, thank you very much. It's wonderful to have you. Now it's time to, Great um, to see you guys. Uh, see thank you. you. It's a wonderful uh, time now to promote to panelist um, Gavin Ellis, who is uh, our um, 
correspondent on the issue of the big decision this week by the government to scrap the idea of uh, a merger between TVNZ and RNZ. Welcome, Gavin, to the Hoon. Uh, our, you, our, our, no, our... A disclosure, I do not have 67 houses <laughs> in Dunedin, but I could, would quite like to have one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, the capital gains in Dunedin in the last two or three years yeah. have Can been Can we not make everything about housing? So, look, the full, full disclosure here, one of the reasons Gavin is here, Gavin is the uh, former editor of the Her- former editor-in-chief of The Herald, uh, he did an amazing thing. He's converted himself into a into a, a highly qualified global journalism academic. And he and I have done some work with the Koitu uh, think tank uh, run by Sir Peter Gluckman about the merger of TVNZ and Radio New Zealand. And the thing that I think Peter and I were in agreement with, with, with the group that we were working with was that it was a badly conceived piece of legislation, that the idea of the merger might be valid, but it was a poorly conceived piece of legislation. So, Gavin, maybe maybe you could outline what, what was wrong with the idea or the way it was being executed. Yeah, but sure. And before I start, Peter, most grateful for your, your input into, into that process too. It was really appreciated. Um, we felt that the idea of a merger was really code for something else. It was code for the need to change what were essentially anachronistic structures to something that would live in the in the digital age now why have a radio organization when you no longer have radio or a television organization when you no longer have television and they all do everything anyway so that was the starting point but the legislation itself um, and you'll recall this peter it went further than than not being appropriate. Um, it was described by a, a learned legal uh, scholar as unsafe. Mm. In other words, um, and and I think that 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 had an effect on the the select committee. The select committee made, I think, some very good improvements mm. to the legislation. What they couldn't improve was, was what wasn't there. And there was so much that wasn't there. You know, they didn't, for example, have any detail whatsoever about structural imperatives. You know, how do you keep the commercial operations going but separated from and sustaining the non-commercial public interest? But also, Gavin, there was also this huge question, which Willie Jackson compounded at least twice, which Chris Farfoy had not done when he was in that uh, portfolio of political influence. You know, the the, the, yeah, the, right. the way they had structured it allowed them to have greater influence than, than, than now. We were just, it was all on trust. And yet every time Willie Jackson spoke about it, it was clear that he had a political perspective on it that was incompatible with journalistic independence. Yeah. Why an autonomous crown entity mm. when... Television New Zealand and, and RMZ are crown companies which have uh, legislative independence a degree of, uh, not quite as much as an independent crown entity, but certainly more than an autonomous crown entity. So there are all sorts of questions like that. Um, so I'm quite pleased that the bill has gone away, um, mm. but the issues haven't gone away. No, exactly. One, yeah. one of the problems remains the problem, to me, Gavin, the and we... still there. I mean, but yeah. the, the, the RNZ with pictures is a sort of 
nice but slightly half-assed operation. Um, One News is excellent at 6 o'clock and not tremendously good on its app. So neither of them is capitalising on the actual brand strength they've got. I think TVNZ is still – TVNZ 6 o'clock News, which is amazing, is still the most trusted yeah. um, news product in New Zealand apart from the Kaka. <laughs> and or apart from the Hoon, actually, because uh, we because we always just say that everybody's got sixty seven houses and and we 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 induced loathing straight away. But the you know this this the BBC director general recently said that you know they expect he expected uh, the BBC to be not broadcasting on a linear basis within the next decade or so. I mean these pressures more than that, more than that Peter. He said it will. Yeah, you know, he put a peg in the ground. Yeah. Uh, it will be a digital-only service. Yeah. Um, so where does that leave TVNZ and RNZ? Indeed, where does it leave the, the whole media landscape? Because I'm not sure that uh, the, the private sector is entirely uh, prepared for the future either when it comes to that. No, absolutely. But I think that um, whoever is the next government is going to have to address this issue again, but they have to do it far better than it's been done so yeah. far. I wonder, Gavin, if, um, you know, we've we've focused on putting them together to try to, you know, make them stronger, when actually all that was needed was more funding for both, and in particular well, RNZ, because mm-hmm. when you look at the combined public broadcasting funding per capita for New Zealand versus the rest of the world, we're the second worst ahead of America, which is not a good sign. And and maybe all we needed was just a shedload more money for RNZ and somehow protecting the public uh, interest aspects of TVNZ with a big pot of funding. No, it, it doesn't get rid of the anachronistic uh, issues, Bernard. But, and, but you mean? Do, do, you, know, you, mean, you, do you mean? Sorry, Gavin. Do you mean the anachron? Do you mean the anachronisms of of having these two kind of vertical mediums yeah. related no, to the no. the medium on which they're broadcasting? Yeah, I mean we've we've got to we've got to ask ourselves as a country we've got to ask ourselves some pretty fundamental questions. You know, do we want a non-commercial public media entity? like the BBC Mm. or the ABC. Okay, if that's what we want, are we prepared to pay for it? Yeah. Because the ABC costs about almost a billion dollars New Zealand a year to run. Um, And I I don't think I can can cope with the size of the the BBC's budget. Mm. It's beyond my, my meager mental capabilities. So you see what I mean? They... We we want the best of the world, but we're not prepared to pay for it. Is yeah. basically the, the the way that I think one the, of the one sounds of the, like a lot like flooding infrastructure, to be frank. But, but anyway, but, um, Gavin, one of the we're, we're we're going to have to close in a minute. But one of the critical aspects that might come out of this to be beneficial, because I, I I actually, you know, the, the the fact that this has been badly argued is the problem, really. Rather, you know, the, the, the government, as with so many things lately, or in the last three years or so hasn't made the case for some of this important progressive legislation. You know, if the case was there, we would not have done that um, submission to the select committee the way we did. But it's possible here that the um, out of the ashes of this might come a stronger New Zealand on air, which has actually been an extraordinarily effective, very small but tightly run organisation that distributes well, please, public please, broadcasting please. over the yeah. over the whole media. 
I, I'm pleased that their future will be more assured with the dropping of the mm. of the bill, um, and I think that they they do an exceptionally good job. But look, it doesn't overcome these fundamental structural issues that need to be addressed. We've got to have a national conversation about this. The government shouldn't be telling the people what they will what they want. The people should be telling government what do, they do want. Do you think it would so be all right if three a, three men with conversation? Do you think it would be all right if three grey haired men with three Pakiha grey head grey haired men with glasses and beards no, incredibly elegant no, beards started no. that conversation? Because I no. think we've got the right ideas. Uh, no, you've lost your consultancy. You're not <laughs> Uh, Gavin, just sure am I. Sure am I. Gavin, just to, to... It's a broad-based one, a broad-based national conversation about where we go with our media. Good landscape. idea. Let's let's kick it off. So, um, Gavin, on that uh, note, just for um, a bit of uh, a history lesson for um, myself and our audience here on the Kaka, uh, a decade ago. You and I uh, got together for a bit of a chat about how we could build a publicly funded journalism organisation that we called journalism.org. And we got part of the way through hmm. the process. Hmm. And uh, essentially, I ran out of runway to fund it. And uh, our hope and our our thesis to, that we communicated to people, and, and I, I, I put my head above the parapet... <laughs> Uh, was to say um, we've got a problem in New Zealand in 2012, which is that our public media and our private media are not necessarily doing a great job of informing the public about the things that matter for the public. So um, we'd love it if uh, if people want to contribute to a philanthropically funded public interest journalism organisation, if you could have a crack. And so I put it out there and hoped that everyone would, would give me an email and, and um, send a couple of million dollars <laughs> into, the, into the trust which, which Gavin was going to uh, create. And uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. And so no, uh, we, we need to learn from the past, Bernard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we, 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 I think this whole philanthropic approach is going to require a, a, a big change in tax as well. Tax well, that's an interesting. But... New, New Zealand philanthropists, you know, are quite keen on donating money to hospitals and um, hearts, heart, heart cancer research. But when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, funding the public interest <laughs> elements of journalism, uh, either they decide that it's it's their particular take on the public interest that they'd like to see put across. And we've seen that with the rights who have funded the creation of the platform. Yeah. And... Um, Heaven knows who else has funded all those um, weird uh, um, Facebook channels and various other mm. YouTube channels that were involved in the anti-vax movement and various other things. But um, my and after a, you know a fairly bruising exercise here, I basically decided if the public want this stuff, eventually they'll work it out, and maybe they'll mm. pay for it. And um, my thesis was eventually. Uh, ended up with me doing the kaka, which was to make it really easy for people to contribute to the public interest journalism, and to get is it over tax the... deductible. Uh, I'm it not probably doing be. it unless it's tax deductible. It well, actually, could... it probably is tax deductible. It for could me. be yeah. if you could claim it for expenses, mm. and there are some corporate subscribers who mm. have done that, Excellent. which is all good. And and um, Gavin, you've been involved in the space with Crux and uh, various others through the years. 
maybe this isn't a problem politicians can solve and actually the public themselves are going to have to take responsibility and actually stump up their own money if they really want a free society without Donald Trump as their leader at some point. Look, I, I think, Bernard, that, that there are many, many complexities in this. It's not just the public. It's a combination of the public and government because there are all manner of issues. You know, we haven't even addressed disinformation, um, and that's a growing and uh, worrying problem that trusted media has a, a very important role mm. to play all sorts of things like that. It's a combination of the public working with government, not the government telling the public what it will want. Good on you. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna move on to the to the floods now. I think is that correct? The floods. Um, we uh, we may have someone to join us in a minute, D- Gavin. I'd like to thank you very much for um, for your involvement for uh, this afternoon, and and also <laughs> thank you for all your help over those. 10 years ago and uh, I'm um, I'll have to make sure I give you a free subscription to the Kaka apart from anything else <laughs> we can rise from the ashes please. yes absolutely the Kaka is, is actually very closely related to the Phoenix ah this is good yeah. this is good it's another piece of Peter Bale Bollocks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> top quality bollocks. I did used to own quality. the domain topqualitybollocks.com. But, uh, <laughs> you gave it all, you let it last? I did let it last, yeah. I'll go, it's going to be millions now because T- T- Tamahiri will be on now immediately owning yeah. it. See you. Okay. Bye, Gavin. Thanks, Gavin. A pleasure. Kath, yes. I just want to mention in, in, the, in the chat you've said about the, the contestable fund. I mean, that is exactly how um, New Zealand On Air works. And that contestable project, I think, has been extremely good because it's funded work on um, uh, commercial networks and all, all sorts of places, let alone sort of dramas and things that would never have been done. I mean, I think the difficulty is that the COVID support that the government gave to journalism became weaponized by, um, you know, the Public Interest Journalism Fund became weaponized, particularly on the anti-COVID side, to this idea that, you know, somehow the, the journalists were being bought off. And I, I don't think that was correct. But, you know, that is a real problem that has now been perceived as that. But I, I think the way New Zealand on air works is exceptional. And um, apart from anything else, thank you so much to all of the people who have subscribed to the Kaka, because in a way you, you are the rubber that hits the road when it comes to people supporting independent public interest journalism. And I've stumbled along over the last couple of years finding ways to do public interest journalism that uh, I can uh, have support from individuals and make sure they get uh, something very special first and uh, a closer connection to it, but at the same time be able to open it up. And one of the things I've learned over the last uh, few months is that if I ask subscribers for permission uh, to open things up so that it can be publicly shared and listened, amazingly and very generously people say, yes, uh, I'd love this to be open. And we did that this week with a piece on the $5 prescription co-payment fee, which, according to research from the University of Otago... Josephine's uh, on. So, Josephine's on. So, um, University of Otago was... Um, uh, was um, uh, actually better to be removed and and then um, this would mean that a whole bunch of people wouldn't go to hospital. So we've got Josephine Bartley coming on. Uh, she can tr- see us, but we can't see her yet. Yeah. Can you ask her what her name is on the um, site? Let me just check if we've got her in 
our green room, so to speak. Uh, Q&A participants. Sonia. Sonia. Ah, she's called Sonia. Ah. <laughs> Agent Sonia. Go ahead. <laughs> well, let me just call up Sonia. And then we will um, chat because she's using someone else's computer, which is a perfectly normal thing to do on a Friday afternoon. Sonia Bismarck. No, S-O-N-I-A-T-I-T-I. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Brilliant. Brilliant. Promote to panelists. So can I talk to her first? Yes, please. So Sonia is actually Josephine Barley. All right. Coming in under her secret MI6 name. Josephine, are you there? I am here. Oh, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for coming in. Now, you and I don't know each other, but I think you know um, uh, Celia. So it's really good to have you here. Um, You were one of the – we had uh, Chloe last week, Chloe um, Schwarbrick last week, and – Julie Ferry. Julie Ferry on. You guys have been doing – you, they, and Richard um, uh, Hills from the North Shore seem to have been doing some amazing work in getting out into the community and – I don't want to put you in the position of criticising the mayor, but you've really been very active locally. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to in Auckland? Um, yeah, I can't even believe that it's been a, a week already. Um, just really getting out there and just supporting communities from the get-go. Uh, last Friday when people started ringing me and sending me videos of them swimming in the streets mm. and then asking me, oh, what what should mm. we be doing? Not and swimming in the streets would be an excellent idea, but, yeah, very hard yeah, to stop yeah. kids doing that, though, yeah. Yeah, I think it's because it's never happened before, and so everybody was just, like, straight away, you know, trying to figure out what, what was going on. Um, really, really, it's about sharing information and just advocacy, um, maybe some common sense input here yeah. and there. Do, do you um, have, have, it, it, have you been working mainly on your wards, which is Mangakia Kia, and what's what's your what's Tam- the Tamaki, Tamaki which yeah. includes the likes of Otahuhu, Penrose? Is that correct? Yes. And ha- have um, you felt that there's been any issues of different um, treatment of of some of your areas relative to say some of the some of the more expensive areas in Auckland? I think my area was all right. We weren't badly hit. But where I've been um, active a lot, aside from checking on my area, has been over in Mangere. Mm-hmm. That's because uh, a lot of my family and friends live there, and so they contacted me for help straight away. Uh, and that's where I saw that there needed to be some uh, some support going in there. And then also uh, Mount Roskill, so Julie's area. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went out there to do the AM show and then I looked around and I saw there wasn't much food there. Yeah. And then I saw all the families coming in, a lot of Pacific Island families. And so I asked them, are you, you know, do you have enough resources for all the families coming through? So then was able to contact Winnie's um, Youth Auckland mm-hmm. and they dropped a truckload of food parcels mm-hmm. that day. So really um, I'm not restricted in where I um, try and you know support. It's just where the need is. But, I'll go there, but first and foremost, looking after my area. Thank you. Just to, just to think about Mangere for a minute. There, you've got a tremendous amount of um, Kaingo Aura housing, relatively poor housing. You've also got a tremendous amount of. I think I think there are something like 150 Kaingo Aura properties there that have been red stickered or un, that are uninhabitable at the moment. What, what about? I mean, do you think that Mangere is a particular problem from a flooding point of view or from a building point of view or neglect point of view and 
are you concerned what you see about what what's being built? Because I know Bernard wants to ask you in a minute about the whole implications for intensification. But if you could just address Mungary or these these less well off areas that you've been to. Yeah, um, I grew up in Mangadish. I lived on Ashgrove Road. Um, and it, we, it never flooded there. In the 30 years that I lived there, it never flooded. Um, and so, yeah, I do see the Kainga Order homes. We went and talked to some of the families in those streets. Um, and, yeah, I, I guess, I, I, I mean, the houses that are flooded were by these little creeks. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, I don't know myself what mitigation went in there, what... Um, you know, Kaingora offered mm. in return to kind of mitigate the flood risk. I'm not sure, but I know over in my area in Glenninus, we have major intensification. We yeah. have the same huge. Of homes going yeah. up, huge, um, but we don't flood as bad. And I think that's because we have a lot more green finger reserves uh-huh. and because the new builds have water tank, water retention tanks. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, that mitigation, because, I mean, that's that's uh, um, Julie Ferry mentioned that last week, and I noticed that um, Richard Hills took uh, James Shaw uh, and a couple of other bigwigs from Wellington to see some, you know, fairly extraordinary-looking developments in the North Shore, which are des- you know designed to flood, designed to manage manage some of this. I mean, this it, it, presumably is it your impression that this is the new normal? And as a councillor, will you be working with the councillor council to find out what these mitigation exercises need to be definitely yeah I, I put a call out on twitter as well just to find out you know there seems to be a lot of uh, intellectual debate on there besides the trolling uh on what we can do to as a city to um you know build the way we're building but also to recover from the flooding and to make sure we don't have the same damage happen again. Josephine, um, in your ward is Glen Innes and the Tamaki Regeneration um, Organisation, which is a combination of former Auckland Council uh, but also Kanga Ora housing that's been intensified, as you mentioned. Can you give us a, a picture, for those who haven't seen it, uh, how that's been developed, because you're right, it's been very intensified. There's a lot of, you know, townhouses and uh, all sorts of, you know, increase in the volume of people per square hectare or whatever it is. Can you tell us how they did that, did that to avoid the sort of massive flooding that you saw in places, for example, out west, uh, Mangere, uh, Otohuhu? What, what did they do? You mentioned Green Fingers but what, and the tanks, but what, what else did they do to really make sure that the development, the intensification actually happened without the flooding? I'm not an expert. I only know what I know from being on the local board. Uh, And we had a lot of focus on environmental projects there, but also working in Otamaki Regeneration because when they did remove the state house, they found underneath it Mm. there was hardly any uh, water pipes or, you know, stormwater infrastructure. Um, so I know that a lot of investment was needed uh, to get us some proper, you know, uh, infrastructure underground. Because you will have heard the likes of Christine Fletcher and some others say, oh, we need to stop the intensification now. The floods have proven that intensification doesn't work and that uh, we need to, you know, have an investigation and stop the intensification. What, what do you say to, to people like that who've, you know, used this, these floods as an opportunity to say, you know, 
the uh, medium density residential standards, the three townhouses per section, you know, all of these townhouses going up in various places should be stopped. What do you say to them? I think that's very, um, it's very simple, um, you know, to say, to use it to further your agenda. Mm. Um, But look at where we do intensification well uh, and how you manage the flooding there. But also, of course, common sense, you don't build where it floods, mm. but everywhere is flooding. Um, so, yeah, it's how, how you make sure, um, you know, for instance, you're not building right. Well, actually, I don't know. I'm at my cousin's place because she's looking after my dog Milo while I was at Castle all day. Yeah. And across the road from me is um, Monaco Harbour, just right there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it... <laughs> Yeah, especially now with climate change and the 100-year rain events are going to happen. So it is really, yeah, how do we do intensification, bearing in mind that a lot of places will be affected by uh, heavy rainfall. Mm. Josephine, do, what, do you, what are you telling your community as this uh, likelihood is of, of us getting at least the tail end of the cyclone coming down probably Monday, Tuesday? Well, what we saw from last Friday's flooding was that a lot of us are not prepared. A lot of us don't know what to do when something like this happens. So I'm really glad that people are now kind of woken up to being prepared. Even my own family. My family never prepare. Mm. They just have enough food in the cupboard for that day. Yeah. But right now... We need a grab, but we need grab bags. And, yeah, right and, now they're working on, um, you know, like they're messaging me, like, what do I need? What do I need to make sure we're okay? Actually, if anybody so doesn't know it, there, if, you, if, you, if you search civil defence and grab bag, that there is quite a good bit, a bit of advice about what you, what you actually need. And I have, I wouldn't say I had a grab bag, although I used to have one when I was a proper reporter to go anywhere. But, you know, little, there's a few little things that you can just put to hand. You know, yeah. you're not going to forget where they are. So I think that's a very – thank you, Josephine. J- Josephine, just one final question. When we had the phone box, that was easy. Because yeah. was the- <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, just one final question, uh, Josephine. Um, you know, this has put the council's finances under pressure, which sometimes people can go straight to the, you know, the cutting tool to try to solve. Um, just stepping back a bit, I mean, what could the council and the government do to ensure that – you know, all the extra people who want to live in Auckland and who are going to live in Auckland have um, have affordable homes that are not going to flood. What what should both parties do? Because we're in this horrible situation at the moment where we know we need to build the houses and we, know we need to build them in a way that's safe and isn't going to flood and is warm and is dry and is not mouldy, uh, but neither the council nor the government seem to want to stump up the infrastructure to do it. So from your point of view as a councillor who's hearing all this noise about, you know, we can't afford it and all of this, what, mm. what do you say to the, what do you say about how, how to how to deal with this? Uh, what I say is it's a matter of priorities. It's what's important to uh, the decision makers at the time. They said that with Tamaki as well. There's no money yeah. for the infrastructure. Mm. Tamaki Regeneration came to council asking for $800 million for the infrastructure that was needed there for this social experiment because there was no funding pathway marked out. And that money was found from, you know, the government's mm. stepped up and provided the, the millions needed for that infrastructure, thank goodness. So, um, And that yeah, was actually under, is, that was right. actually started under the national government. Bill English was very keen to get Tamaki regeneration 
uh, up and running. And it, it shows that it can be done when the central government and local government decide to work together and invest the big bucks, frankly, in ensuring that the pipes are right. He is the Michael Joseph Savage of the, of the National Party, isn't he? He has been. And, yeah. um, yeah. Good Catholic man. <laughs> right. Josephine, let me mention something to you and to, and to the audience because a chap who I see is actually on our audience, Ben Van Bruggen, contacted me the other day and I wasn't quite sure why, but he has created uh, something called the urban pro- urbanroom.com, which is in has a physical presence in Key Street as a kind of pop-up. I haven't been down there yet myself, but it's a pop-up kind of architectural planning place, which is a way of opening the discussion in a physical way about the ways in which we might live in future. And I think there are some very good examples, as we discussed with Julie Ferry last week. There's some, you know, the the um, you know, there are some great parts of Auckland where there's really interesting, um, you know, environmentally sound uh, mitigations, such as the outside the ferry building along the along Key Street. Um, you know, we, we, we've talked about the Wynyard Quarter. Um, there's clearly some things in Avondale that, have, that are starting to work. I mean, imagine fixing the Fowl River or some of those tributaries into going into the Manukau. Could be amazing. Definitely, yeah. And all this um, daylighting. I know Julie mm. um, had a, yeah. a, a put out an article about soak, so, sponge or mm. soak, something, sponge city. Yeah, I think it's cool. I think um, I think more people need to know that when it does flood, it's it's you know in, in those certain reserves, it's not a bad thing. Exactly. People immediately exactly. freak out. Yeah. Jo- jo- thank you so jo- much, Josephine. Thank you so much for being on the Hoon. We'll, jo- we'll have you again if you don't mind, because you're totally brilliant and connected to your community. So I really appreciate you coming on, and I know it was a bit of a rush. So thank you so much. Oh. All good. Thank you. Thank you. For, for those who, who haven't uh, met or seen Josephine before, you might be somewhere else in the country. Josephine Bartley is the Auckland City Councillor for the Mangakiki Tamaki Ward, which includes the likes of Otahuhu uh, and uh, Glen Innes and a whole bunch of other areas on and presumably the presumably Wantry Hill, end. if it's Mangakiki. Exactly, yes. Yes, Wantry yeah. Hill. Yeah, yeah. Mangakiki. Yeah. No, I am going to... I'm going to yeah, run around One Tree, One Tree Hill tomorrow. I'm going on the park run, which would be great. Excellent. Th- thank you oh, very thank you much. so much. Thank you. Uh, lovely thank you. to see you all. Thank you so much to Josephine, to Gavin Ellis, and and also to uh, our Robert Patman, who joined us at the start of the show. Can I just can I just say something also? Because particularly Frankie was on. But Frankie, we know everybody wants to go off and watch the TVNZ news. That's why we don't keep going. We were going to deal with the um, Turkish earthquake, and I, I dealt with that this week in my spin-off thing, which mm. will Bernard will put in his notes. But the difficulty with the Turkish earthquake is that there are so many, and there's a pattern to earthquakes. There's that, you know, to, to earthquake reporting. There's the gigantic scale of it at the beginning. There's the three-year-old child rescued three days later. There's the miracle rescue with an Israeli rescue dog, almost always. Uh, I think the int- one of the interesting things in here, and we could try and address this next week, is Syria um, because of the difficulty of getting into Syria. Is- Israel's already been invited into Syria. The um, United Nations and others are saying they will not give aid into Syria unless they have access to the rebel-held area. So I think that's the political one. We will try and try and do it next week. I'll try and think of somebody good to do it. In fact, I've just thought of somebody brilliant to do it if I can get her to bother doing it or realise how incredibly important Mm, the kaka is absolutely the hoon sorry the, the hoon um and and we've got your questions in there thank you very much um I, lovely to see you all have a great weekend and if you're in and around auckland northland and elsewhere please stay safe and dry hopefully this bloody cyclone 
um, bends off into some some empty ocean somewhere. Kakite no everyone, and we shall put on the jazzy music. Yeah, which Brent says would be sexier if it had more saxophone in it. More. <laughs> uh, yes. There we go. See ya. More sex. Yep. More sexy saxophone. Thank you very much, Kakite. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.